1950, as humanity began to contemplate and understand the universe, physicists noted an eerie silence. As our technology grew since then, the silence has only gotten louder. The universe is infinite, with billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, many of which have been shown to have planets in an orbit similar to Earth. The laws of probability mean that intelligent life must have evolved elsewhere in the universe, in many other places. Yet, we've made contact with none of them and have detected not even a trace. From a probabilistic perspective, that is bizarre. Or, as Nobel Prize-winning Italian physicist Enrico Fermi famously asked, Where is everybody? I'm Rob Cohen physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Demo Crises. Democracy, demography, and demoralization. The Fermi Paradox. The paradox of an infinite universe, but life as we know it found only on Earth. Of course, there are many possible solutions to the Fermi Paradox. It could be that life never evolved anywhere else, or that extraterrestrials are deliberately not contacting us and hiding all evidence so that they can watch what happens on Earth like a movie. That's called the zoo hypothesis. But for me, the explanation that makes the most sense is summarized as, it is the nature of intelligent life to destroy itself. In other words, once an intelligent species develops godlike technologies such as interstellar communication, their destructive capacities outrun their inventive or productive ones and they destroy their planet before achieving sustainable status. The technological capacity needed to search the cosmos can also be harnessed to build and deploy nuclear weapons, cause total environmental destruction, or trigger catastrophic climate change. Sound familiar? The Fermi Paradox is well-known and discussed among physicists and astronomers. In the 1960s, a Soviet astronomer named Nikolai Kardashev developed a scale of planetary civilizations which was most recently popularized in the United States by physicist Michio Kaku. Let's focus on the type of civilization called a Type I civilization. A Type I civilization, as defined by the Kardashev scale, is a planetary civilization that can collectively harness enough of the energy emitted by its parent star, in our case, that's the sun, to provide for its life forms. Although not specifically indicated by Kardashev, such energy efficiency would allow a planetary civilization to sustainably provide for the needs of its planetary inhabitants. Right now, instead, humans are destroying planetary resources in order to provide that same needed energy. Indeed, the Kardashev scale also describes a type zero civilization, like our own, which gets its energy not from the sun, but by slowly burning up all available energy sources on Earth, and in doing so, wrecking the climate and the ability of most species to survive. The most consequential transition that must happen in the universe, and for us Earthlings, is the transition from a type zero to a type one civilization. 
which in practical terms means that humanity must stop burning fuels from the ground and start using energy from the sun if we are to attain a sustainable planet. Author Tom Friedman calls this a transition from burning fuels from hell in exchange for using fuels from heaven. If we are able to make the transition to a type 1 civilization, we would sustainably have enough energy to provide for all humans and animals on Earth while we work out our many other problems. Without this, however, we will all be destroyed together. The famous scientist Carl Sagan and others have calculated that Earth currently stands at about 0.7 on the Kardashev scale, which means we are close, but still have a ways to go. And just for completeness, before we delve into the rest of the episode, let's define the whole Kardashev scale. While a Type 1 civilization harnesses sufficient energy from its parent star for indefinite sustainability, a Type 2 civilization can harness all of the energy from its parent star, not just the energy that lands on the planet in question. And a Type 3 civilization can harness energy from the entire galaxy. Many scientists have calculated that we have approximately a century to either achieve Type 1 status or destroy ourselves. Michio Kaku says, quote, The people living today are the most important ever to walk the surface of the planet, since they will determine whether we attain this goal or descend into chaos. This discussion may seem like a bit of a departure from the global crises of democracy, although you may already see the connection. Why are we talking about astronomy on the Demo Crises podcast? Well, in season one, we talked about the global crises of democracy. I think it's fair to say that many political leaders have failed to articulate a clear vision for 21st century politics nationally and internationally, and all sorts of false prophets are popping up, including populism, nationalism, and some extreme religious ideas. What should be the goal of democracy in the 21st century? Well, an alert listener named Nathan sent me a poignant quote from the thinker Yuval Noah Harari. I mean, many of the, of the, of, of the politicians today in the world, they have absolutely no vision for the future of humankind. You ask them, what is your best case and worst case scenario for humankind in 2040? And you really get nothing. Our world's goal for the coming decades should be building a Type 1 civilization. Here's why. All of the available data suggests that we alive today in the 21st century face a once-in-a-billion-years opportunity with truly cosmic consequences. I know that sounds hubristic, but it's what the data are telling us. We can either use our many societal advances to solve our mounting challenges within the next century and achieve Type 1 status, or we can allow the destructive forces in our global civilization, what I call the three demo crises of democracy, demography, and demoralization, to overwhelm our global society just as they have overwhelmed all other societies on Earth that have arisen during its existence. The purpose of this podcast is to share solutions to these three crises and others so we can avoid total societal collapse and instead build a type 1 civilization. 
The three demo crises are not our only existential crises, but they're a good place to start. During our first season, we examined the global crisis of democracy past and present and of societal leadership more generally, and we saw that it is inadequate for our current challenges even if it is better than anything that has been tried before. We saw that most societies go boom and bust in two to three centuries no matter what their governance structure. The global industrial society launched by the Industrial Revolution in the 1760s when James Watt invented the steam engine so we could start burning coal, aka the fires from hell, is nearing the end of its three-century window. So is the United States, which is currently 242 years old. Indeed, America and Britain were perhaps the biggest beneficiaries of the Industrial Revolution, so it's not surprising that their trajectories would align. Democratic failures, environmental destruction, and global overpopulation. These are mounting problems here on Earth. Our problems seem to get worse, and we get demoralized. We get depressed and stop trying, and our leaders lose their morals and don't implement the needed policies, preferring greed instead. The three demo crises of democracy, demography, and demoralization are among the biggest crises that stifle our capacity to progress toward a type one civilization. We must overcome them. So will we use our intelligence to achieve type 1 status? Or will we resolve the Fermi paradox on Earth as we prove that the nature of intelligent life is to destroy itself? That's up to us. Well, what practically do we need to achieve type 1 status? On Earth in 2018, we used only 18 terawatts of power. That sounds like a lot. A terawatt is a trillion watts which, if you remember high school physics, is 18 trillion joules of energy per second. Again, sounds like a lot. However, what if I told you that the sun hits the earth with 10,000 times that amount, 180,000 terawatts of energy per second? This means that to achieve type 1 status, we only need to harness one ten-thousandth of the energy from the sun to generate a global sustainable energy source. Surely we can do that if we try. Physicist Michio Kaku estimates that at humanity's current pace of technological advancement, Earth can achieve type 1 status in one to two centuries. But as I mentioned earlier, other scientists have estimated that we have only a hundred years before self-destruction. We are, quite literally, in a race against time. A race for our survival. Perhaps you're wondering at this point, why should we even care? Those of us with the opportunity to even contemplate this question are very, very lucky in both time and space. I believe our world's goal should be a golden age for all people and animals sustained indefinitely by harnessing terawatts from our parent star and gathering enough wisdom to avoid human nature's fallibility in perpetuity. And I believe we can do it, although I admit that's more based on faith than on empirical observation. So what's the difference between the golden age that we're living in and humanity's normal existence? Well, by definition, the lifespan of most people is not long enough to experience both. We have to rely on history or travel to differentiate the two lives. People lucky enough to live during a civilization's golden age 
experience the peace, plenty, health, and pursuit of happiness, which together characterize the best possible human experience. On the contrary, those born during decline or collapse experience the worst of the human condition, poverty, disease, suffering, and cruelty. One of those existences is on absolute terms so much better than the other. If we were given a choice, shouldn't we try to build a world of only the former? Those of us who are able to influence our world must clearly try to build the former. Now some will object and say that despite collapses, nations will rise again so we don't need to worry about this. Fatalists will tell you that history progresses in long cycles, the universe has moral symmetry, and we need the bad times to appreciate the good. But let's recall the Chinese example from our inaugural episode. Between China's fall in the 19th century until its current rise, several generations and over a billion people suffered immeasurable hardship, violence, and humiliation, while beautiful animals such as the Yangtze River dolphin went extinct and the iconic panda population sank below 2,000. Meanwhile, hundreds of millions of Chinese still toil today in factories or farms with minimal freedom or disposable income. The Earth may survive as a planet if human-caused environmental destruction proceeds to its natural conclusion, but the consequences for the generations that have to live through that period are worth avoiding if possible. Few humans will care about the long arc of history or the supposed moral symmetry of the universe while they suffer through famine, genocide, epidemics, or subjugation. There are many different types of collapse. Some render different populations more vulnerable. Sometimes the elites suffer and die, sometimes the masses, usually both. Therefore, because no one wants to experience the realities of a cyclical low point, people alive today and in the generations to come have a big interest in achieving what thus far no society has achieved, perpetual peace and prosperity. Besides being a moral and beautiful idea to strive for, it also conveniently appeals to our personal interest. A great society that endures forever without collapse even fits a reasonable definition of heaven on earth, while the widespread misery of a tragic bust provides an adequate approximation of hell. Our choice in the 21st century is no less than the choice between heaven or hell on earth. German philosopher Immanuel Kant actually called humanity to consider its choice between these two paths all the way back in 1795, when he published a short essay called Perpetual Peace. In this short essay, he laid out nine steps that governments in Europe could take to achieve such an equilibrium, such as eventual disarmament and the establishment of republican governance. Coincidentally, in 1793, Chinese Emperor Qianlong had warned King George to stay out of China's affairs in order to preserve the blessings of perpetual peace. After a tumultuous 18th century, when the Enlightenment's hope stood juxtaposed against the French Revolution's bloody reign of terror, Kant's proposal was salient, if optimistic. The subsequent centuries would provide Kant some vindication as humanity soon achieved unprecedented advances in global peace and prosperity, 
but so far his perpetual peace remains unrealized. It's interesting to note that Kant's call for perpetual peace came at the birth of our global industrial civilization, which now stands on the verge of the choice between heaven or hell on earth. Nevertheless, some civilizations have extended their golden age long enough that we can reasonably imagine some critical threshold of positive synergy, after which we achieve a virtuous trajectory like a plane trying to take off. After all, humanity has solved some limiting problems since the decade of Qianlong and Kant. Examples include the expansion of peace between European republics or the unprecedented economic growth of the last two centuries. So we have great reasons for reality-based optimism, yet we seem also to be making all the mistakes of previous civilizations. Evolutionary biologist E.O. Wilson famously described our conundrum thusly. The real problem of humanity is the following. We have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And it is terrifically dangerous, and it is now approaching a point of crisis overall. Faced with this inflection point, we can either hope that history will proceed differently than it always has, or collectively try to chart a new course. Are human societies governed by simple symmetry in physics? That whatever goes up must come down? That for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction? Must boom always give way to bust? By physical law? Do good and evil exist in equal balance in our world? In perpetuity? By necessity of symmetry? The idea that they do is called moral symmetry, and for the duration of written history, thought leaders have often rationalized the difficulties of life with this fallacy. As their populations experience the joys of life balanced against frequent tragedy from disease or invasion, they concluded that there must exist a necessary balance in the universe's design. For millennia, Westerners believed that Satan's reliable evil balances God's omnibenevolence while Chinese philosophers asserted that yin and yang exist in necessary and complementary balance. Winter balanced summer, day balanced night, and births and deaths long occurred in approximately equal frequency. Of course, until modern times, when public health and prosperity helped bring down the death rate and spurred exponential human population growth. Even esteemed futuristic philosophers like George Lucas postulate that an all-powerful force connecting all things in the galaxy has an equal balance between its light side and dark side, and our culture has internalized this narrative. May the force be with you. And even the laws of physics seem to a casual observer to preordain such balance. We teach children that gravity means that what goes up must come down. Except that's wrong. There is no perfect symmetry in the universe. Gravity attracts masses to each other, so an object moving up from Earth at sufficient velocity will in fact never come down. Newton's third law of physics, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, accurately describes conservation of momentum for inanimate objects, but has nothing to do with human societies. Society is not an inanimate mass, and societal progress does not follow physical law. Social science often describes balancing forces and feedback loops, but exact symmetry in such an inexact complex system is in fact highly improbable. 
If we inferred that progress and decline must balance, that would render the quest for a better world futile. And so many people lazily embrace this fallacy while rationalizing genocide or tragedy. You need the bad to appreciate the good, they tell us. I call this the lazy fallacy of moral symmetry. I respond every time that I don't need the Holocaust, the Syrian genocide, the Ethiopian famine, or the Venezuelan chaos to appreciate my reliable electricity or the absence of marauding hordes in America. And in fact, I bet the people living in Syria today aren't that crazy about the fallacy of moral symmetry, since they're the ones suffering the bad so we could appreciate the good. And let's go back to astronomy for a moment. In instructive contrast to the lazy fallacy of universal symmetry, the universe that you live in actually depends on a fundamental asymmetry. For example, almost all the atoms in the universe consist of matter, protons, electrons, etc., instead of antimatter, which are called antiprotons and positrons. Without getting into the physics of it, antimatter is real. Positrons are used in cancer research in so-called PET scans. That's called positron emission tomography. But our universe is mostly matter. Now why? When a particle meets its antiparticle, in other words, an electron meets a positron, they annihilate each other and become massless radiation or photons. If our universe were equal parts matter and antimatter, if our universe was perfectly symmetric, then all particles would annihilate and no atoms would ever have existed for long. Now, before the Big Bang, the universe probably was symmetric. However, a tiny quantum fluctuation just after the Big Bang created an asymmetry between matter and antimatter with one small extra part matter per billion particles. That's a very tiny asymmetry allowed by the laws of quantum mechanics. And the physics of that helped design the device you're listening to this podcast on. And because at that time the universe was expanding faster than the speed of light, that asymmetry was trapped in space-time because reversing that asymmetry would have required information to travel faster than the speed of light, which is impossible. So instead, that tiny extra asymmetry of extra matter provided the correct initial conditions to give birth to a universe that is overwhelmingly matter rather than antimatter. Again, a universe of equal parts matter and antimatter would annihilate and would become massless energy. In other words, if the universe we lived in were perfectly symmetric, you wouldn't be here and neither would I. And you might think, is this all theory? In fact, the proof of this asymmetry won the Nobel Prize and proved the Big Bang Theory. That's a long story for another time. But in brief, our universe contains something all around us called the cosmic microwave background, low-energy microwaves detectable in all directions from Earth that represent the afterglow of the Big Bang. The energy of the cosmic microwave background equals approximately 1 billion photons for every proton in the known universe, providing evidence of exactly the necessary asymmetry between matter and antimatter. In other words, the fact that we exist is proof that the universe is not perfectly symmetric. In fact, continual progress is possible.
Similarly, 21st century society obviously derives from an asymmetry of progress. For much of agricultural human history, life was famously described as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Life expectancy in early agricultural societies was approximately 19 years. Even as great civilizations advanced through medieval times, the vast majority of the population still lived in absolute poverty of subsistence farming, constantly under threat from their feudal lord, disease, starvation, or invaders. But with the industrial, intellectual, and societal revolutions of the 18th century, humanity embarked on a fundamentally new journey. Since those pivotal years, the rate of violent death has plummeted by between 90 and 99 percent. For example, in Europe in the Middle Ages, there were 100 homicides per 100,000 people, while today it's less than one per 100,000 people and has similarly decreased across the world. Food production also fundamentally changed. For much of human history, subsistence farming was inefficient and food production could not keep up with the birth rate. Famines posed an almost generational threat. The historian Jack Goldstone notes that before 1600, sustained population increases and insufficient farming productivity frequently led to rising food prices, creating widespread misery and eventually the breakdown of the state. This dismal history led the English scholar Thomas Malthus to publish, in 1798, an essay on the principle of population, not coincidentally the same decade as Kant and Chanlong. In this famous essay, Malthus argued that humans would continue to produce too many children up to the food production of their land and so never escape a cycle of poverty, scarcity, and war. His bleak prediction was historically accurate, but proved instructively false about the future as we achieved unprecedented farming productivity gains in the Green Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. And so many countries escaped the Malthusian trap, creating a different world where food was not just available, but abundant. Economic growth also achieved a virtuous liftoff in the last two centuries, which would have been unfathomable then. From 0 to 1820, as most humans lived off subsistence farming, the real average world GDP per capita increased at an annual growth rate of only 0.02%, which underwrote Malthus's accurate historical observations. In 1820, the highest GDP per capita on Earth was a mere $1,800 in the Netherlands, in today's values. But between 1820 and 2008, the global GDP per capita increased by 1.3% per year, and the top GDP per capita in the world in the United States rose to over $30,000. Asymmetry was working out very well for many. Or consider the asymmetries in my field of medicine. The history of medical practice abounds with faulty theories and dangerous practices. For most of history, medical treatment was actually more likely to harm than help. This is epitomized by George Washington's physicians who bled him to death while he suffered from epiglottitis, a throat infection curable by antibiotics that his physicians neither had nor knew about. The best-known attempt to assess when medicine became a positive force in the world ascribes to an American physician named Lawrence Henderson, who said, quote, 
Somewhere between 1910 and 1912 in this country, a random patient with a random disease, consulting a doctor chosen at random, had, for the first time in the history of mankind, a better than 50-50 chance of profiting from the encounter. In 1911, Henderson's transition point, Norway and Sweden had the highest life expectancy in the world at 58 years, while Bangladesh had the world's lowest life expectancy at only 22 years. Fast forward to 2015, after a century of effective medicine, nutrition, education, public health, and peace, Japan now leads the world with a life expectancy of 83 years, and the world's lowest life expectancy is 47 years in HIV-ravaged Lesotho. A Bangladeshi born today has a life expectancy of 70 years, more than three times the lifespan of their great-grandparents. The asymmetries which gave rise to this progress were small at first. However, small asymmetries can create large differences after enough time, as evidenced by our universe of matter, biological evolution of species, or the unequal progress of societies. My point in all this is... The idea that we live in a symmetric universe where type 1 status is impossible because what goes up must come down is wrong. We can achieve type 1 status and unless you want to live through societal catastrophe, we should work to build it and solve our global demo crises. So where does our global society go from here, with the world's most powerful country having elected a caricature of humanity's worst instincts, while our global challenges accelerate? Many books have recently been published that warn of global societal collapse. My favorite is Jared Diamond's, simply named Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. He takes the reader on a spectacular adventure through past societies that collapsed because they destroyed their environment, the Easter Islanders, the Maya, the Greenland Vikings, the ancient Cambodians. And his central thesis is that societies who fail are those who do not abandon their dearly held societal values that were previously adaptive, that may have allowed their civilization to achieve greatness, but since became counterproductive. I'll say that again. His central thesis is that societies either succeed or fail because they recognize which societal values are maladaptive and change them, or they don't. For example, on Easter Island, there were 12 clans. Each clan competed with each other in all sorts of ways, symbolized by building bigger and bigger iconic statues, and they achieved a spectacular civilization on that island. Unfortunately, to do that, they needed lumber to transport all that stone. And in approximately 1400 AD, after a few centuries of exponential population growth, they cut down the last palm tree on the island. We know this because there is a point in the soil record around 1400 at which all tree pollen from tall species disappears, including palms. But the Easter Islanders needed trees for more than just building statues. The trees also provided crucial food, such as the palm fruit, lumber for canoes to go out and catch fish, and they also prevented soil erosion. So soon after the Easter Islanders cut down their last palm tree, their society collapsed into famine, civil war, and eventually cannibalism. 
When the Europeans discovered Easter Island in the 1700s, they found only a few emaciated cannibals. Jared Diamond has other fascinating examples of this pattern in the other societies. That's why it's my favorite book. I would argue that in America today, we have certain societal values that were adaptive in the past but no longer are. All of these would be controversial to discuss. That's the very nature of societal values. But one that I think is very clear is America's original isolationism and waiting until we have overwhelming evidence of a problem to act. We tried to stay out of Europe's troubles for 200 years thinking we could wall ourselves off in Fortress America, and we were wrong. Winston Churchill described this as, quote, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. The evidence of our complex world suggests that we don't have time to exhaust all the alternatives before we do the right thing like we have tried to do in the past. We have to act in the early 21st century to prevent a catastrophe at the end of it. We can do this, but will we? Now, before you get too demoralized, recall that many of the societies we've examined so far did solve existential problems before they collapsed. Indeed, these societies reached their peak expressly because of their ability to solve complex problems. Faced with significant threats, they adapted when possible and proved resilient when necessary. But as their societies grew more complex, so did their challenges until these challenges exceeded their ability to adapt. In her book, The Watchman's Rattle, Rebecca Costa asserts that such societies crossed a cognitive threshold when the average citizen could no longer reliably understand their society's threats. While the ancient Mayans had long adapted to recurrent conditions of water scarcity, by the time of their collapse in approximately 900 AD, their population had exploded exponentially such that a few more wells or reservoirs made negligible difference when a drought hit at the end of the 9th century. Out of desperation, average citizens thereby shelved practices that had worked in the past as well as reason, because they weren't working anymore, in favor of a dramatic increase in human sacrifice, specifically babies. That didn't work either, and so Mayan civilization collapsed. This resembles our society's denialism today in favor of obviously false prophets. Even the reliably optimistic Tom Friedman concurs that in the 21st century, the pace of change exceeds the human ability to adapt. In his recent book, he explains that if human adaptability grows linearly, but technology or challenges grow exponentially, eventually those lines will cross. And he believes we cross that line shortly after 2000 and that all the bewilderment we feel results from this paradigm shift. But he tries to reassure us that everything will be okay and we should just pause to appreciate it. I'd rather act. Indeed, in our amazing society, we are certainly capable of addressing catastrophic and complex threats, such as when we contained an Ebola outbreak in West Africa or have genetically engineered food to yield greater harvest from the same inputs. Yet as our challenges multiply and accelerate, eventually we may fall behind. 
human ingenuity and resilience might solve one, three, or even a hundred existential threats. But in a complex world of several hundred threats, we will still fall short. For example, one scholar identified 210 proposed theories for the fall of the Western Roman Empire, ranging from malaria to Christianity to barbarian attacks to more tenuous proposals, such as public baths and Bolshevization. The thing is, Rome probably did solve many of these challenges, and some were probably overblown, but they couldn't solve all of them. And those they could not solve are what eventually did them in. Let's take as an analogy of a strong society a house resting on a robust foundation, where any individual crack in that foundation will produce negligible effect. However, a sufficient number of defects to the integrity of the foundation will hollow out one segment and potentially lead to collapse in one room of the house. That house may have great engineers that work feverishly to repair the cracks. But if enough new cracks appear faster than the engineer's ability to adapt, they will synergize and spark a sudden and spectacular collapse. The evidence and data that we look at today clearly shows that our global society is careening towards a cataclysmic result, the self-destruction feared by Fermi. But I believe if we work together, applying human intelligence, creativity, kindness, and innovation efficiently, we can not only overcome our crises of democracy, demography, and demoralization, but in doing so, we can build a type one civilization. We created the Demo Crises podcast with the intention of trying to help our world achieve type one status. If you haven't listened to season one yet and you liked this episode, we encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of it. And if you have listened to the first season and you liked it, then I want to ask for your help to spread the word. Indeed, as we learned in season one, the media plays a crucial role in whether our society achieves boom or bust because it explains the challenges of the time to the public so they line up behind the necessary, if complex, policies that make our society better, not worse. And in the 21st century, our media has failed us. Fox News is the most egregious offender with rank propaganda, and the Russians are polluting our social media to confuse us, but others like CNN have not been far behind with its shameless pursuit of stupidity for ratings. Remember the year they wasted on Malaysia Flight 370 right before Donald Trump's rise? The malevolent and stupid forces in the media have been winning and have brought us into this dystopia. We created this podcast to fight back in the court of public opinion. So you've heard season one, which focused on democracy. Next, in the coming months we will release a mini-season on the Congo from where I just returned where I was helping to fight Ebola in the middle of a flawed election and civil war. Congo has become a horrible dystopia of unmet potential, clearly suffering from all three of the demo crises. So stay tuned for that mini-series, coming soon. After that, we'll release our second full season where we'll examine the global demo crisis of demography will explore the exponential human population growth to over 7 billion people and the incredible environmental consequences it has had. 
like we did in Season 1, we'll focus on solutions. Our third season will focus on the global crisis of demoralization, and we'll look at it from every angle as we have here. Now again, I'm going to ask for your help. This podcast is our attempt to fight back against Fox News and the general cancer of ignorance that's growing within our society. But I need your help. If you liked this season and you agree with our need to pursue a type 1 civilization, I need your endorsement, dear listener, and your help to share it with others. Podcasts spread best by word of mouth. I'm asking you to please share this on social media with your friends. When we get new listeners, it brightens our day. Please tell your friends to binge season one. It's there for free without ads. Ask them to spread the word if they like it and to rate and review it. And fight back in your own life. We can only achieve type one status if we have at least twice as many people acting constructively as destructively. I will keep you posted on our progress on democracies.com and on my Twitter account at robcohenmd. Please rate and review the podcast right now if you haven't already done so. It really helps us. Those metrics really help us. And send it to your friends who you think might like it. Or tell us where we can do better. And if you're famous or know someone who is, please endorse it on social media publicly. Thank you. Thank you. You've inspired us. We've grown very quickly. Now let's keep going and together build a type 1 civilization. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.